We are continuing our series on the book of the Revelation of Jesus Christ. We are currently in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. This is part 3 of chapters 2 and 3, the seven churches of Asia Minor. What is now? Now, I'll probably say this again in a week or so, but if you all will remember, when I started this series out, I spoke of how the Revelation, the book of the Revelation, is handled differently than every single other book in the Bible. Whereas we preach out of every book of the Bible, we tend to study the book of the Revelation. And I made this comment. There are messages in the Revelation. I made that statement. I will probably make that statement coming up when we get into late chapter 4 or chapter 5. But I'm saying it again now because I am firmly, I am a firm believer that there are messages in the, in the Revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just academics, not just scholastics, not just study. I believe the Lord would tell us something. That's applicable to us. Last week, in part two of our series on the seven churches, I asked the question, why are the seven churches relevant and how do they apply to me, a 21st century Christian? In our pursuit of an answer to that question, we learned last week how God approaches us. That's what we learned last week, how God approaches us. And he approaches us through an unfathomable love. Ephesians tells us, and I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. In other words, if we needed other words, Paul's prayer here in Ephesians 3 was that we somehow grasp the immeasurable dimensions of a love that transcends understanding. Do I need to repeat that? Paul's prayer right there, we just read that text in Ephesians 3 verse 18, Paul's prayer was that we somehow grasp the immeasurable dimensions of a love that transcends understanding. The $64,000 question, how do we grasp or in more modern vernacular, how do we understand something that surpasses our ability to be 
understood. How do we understand that? Something that's greater than understanding. Well, let's just take a minute here. The Greek here, which we know the New Testament was largely written in the language of Greek. So the Greek here for surpasses knowledge is literally translated exceeds science. Anybody getting a picture? In other words, Christ's love cannot be understood by book learning and schoolhousing. That's not how you understand a transcendent love. It can't be reduced to an intellectual comprehension. It surpasses that kind of understanding. The expansiveness of the love of Christ cannot be contained by mere comprehension. Christ's love, think about this, what I'm about to tell you. The love of Christ destroys the borders of human understanding. So if that's the, the problem that we face here in fulfilling Paul's prayer in Ephesians 13, how do we do this? Well, there's only one way to understand the ununderstandable. You can't reduce it to intellect. You have to experience it. That's the only way you can understand the ununderstandable. That's what being rooted and established means here. And I pray that you, being rooted and established, that's what this means here. That's what it refers to. The Ephesians were in a place where they had experienced this, this immeasurable love. Look again. And I pray that you, he was specific, I pray that you, comma, being rooted and established in love. This wasn't, that wasn't his prayer, that the Ephesians would eventually be rooted and established. That's not the prayer. The Ephesians are already rooted and established. I pray that you, being, That phrase, you being, is present tense. It is as if Paul was saying, I pray that you, seeing that you have been rooted and established in love, may have the power to grasp. The Ephesians were currently experiencing the love of Christ. Apparently, According to verse 18, apparently they just lacked the power to grasp or to comprehend it in the Greek. They couldn't comprehend the dimensions of Christ's love despite the fact they were experiencing it. How many of you in your Christianity, if I'm not as clear as I need to be in my explanation here, this will clear it up. How many of you in your Christianity have ever thought God was upset with you? 
or that you had done something that had taken you outside of the sphere of God's love. How many of you have ever done that? Just raise your hands. You know exactly what Paul is talking about then. Because despite the fact that you in your Christianity are experiencing the love of God, you haven't comprehended it yet. I have t-shirts that say that if you want one. It's one thing to be in it. It's another thing to grasp it. And when we doubt the love of God in our lives and his influence upon us, when we doubt that because we did X, Y, or Z, and we're all, oh, I just know God's upset with me. We haven't wrapped our heads around it. Why? Because we haven't allowed the experience to fully fruition in our lives. We're trying to think it. And that's when you have, <clears throat> do not pass go, do not collect $200. They were experiencing it, but not comprehending it. So, as demonstrated by the seven epistles to the seven churches, despite our flaws, despite our shortcomings, despite the mess that is human existence. And I, I promise you, the most pious among, you, among us, they're still a wreck. I'm telling you. They're still a mess. Why? Because they're human beings. <laughs> Aren't you glad for grace? Aren't you glad for the blood of Jesus Christ? that cleanses us from all unrighteousness. Man, despite all of our flaws and our shortcomings, the Lord approaches us in His immeasurable love. We learned that from chapter 1 because that's what He displayed when He said, Send what you see. Send it all. And we know what He saw. We know what John saw. However, oh, there's always a however. Usually it's the word but. But however is good. He also approaches us in his unwillingness to allow us to remain in those flaws and shortcomings. To remain in our sin and in our flesh. That is what we're going to look at this week. This week in part three of our uh, series on the seven churches, we're going to learn what God expects of us. We can expect Him to approach us in love. What He expects of us is to respond in affirmation. Let's go. I want you to notice a pattern in the seven epistles to the seven churches. I want you to just notice this. Um, and the likelihood is probably way near 100% of chances that you've all seen this pattern in your own personal study, but possibly never really given it any real attention or thought that it was really at all important. 
Um, but this pattern, although rather innocuous at first, is really important in light of what we learned in chapter 1, that he approaches us in his love. Now remember, these seven churches, these guys are a mixed bag. Some of these churches are the churches your mama warned you about. Okay? They are a mess. One of them is such a mess that its heartbeat is just about gone. One of them such a mess, it is all about itself. Man, look at me. Then you have others that are working their tails off, but need a little work. And yet you have others that are just desperate to stay alive, despite the fact they are laboring faithfully for Christ. And he acknowledges all of that. Although not 100% consistent, uh, the pattern uh, of these seven letters consists pretty much of this. The Lord first. First, he identifies the specific church that he wants to address. He calls the church out by name. It's the first rattle out of the box. That is important to us. Remember, we're trying to answer the, 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 the question, why are these churches relevant and how do they apply to me? Well, the first thing he does when he speaks to the church is he calls the church out specifically by name. That's important because he interacts with us in much the same way. He calls the church out by name and then addresses the church both individually and personally. When God comes to us, he calls us out by name. And he addresses us in whatever it is we're doing, saying, thinking, practicing, etc. He addresses us individually and personally. That's the first thing he does in this pattern. Then, the next thing he does is he identifies himself by offering some specific detail as being the same person that John saw in chapter 1 and then turned around and told the seven about. So he identifies himself. Do you all remember in chapter 1, or uh, in... um, Uh, Chapter 2, do you remember me covering this? When he opens the letters to the seven, he says, these are the words of him who. Do you all remember that? These are the words of him who. It's as though Christ is identifying himself to each individual church so they can relate to who is speaking to them. And this is what he says. He says, you know, (laughs) you know that vision of the glorified Christ that John saw, and then he described that vision to you, yeah, that's me. These are the words of him who, for example, has a sharp two-edged sword. Well, that was in the vision. These are the words of him who was dead and is now alive. That was in the vision. Right? And on and on. All that descriptive stuff, he uses that. Once identifying the church, he identifies himself in a way that they can go, okay, this is the Lord. Have you ever wondered if the voice in your spirit 
was him or not? How many of you have gotten to a place, and this is not a trick question, where when he speaks, you know his voice? Yeah. Remember when I told you a week or two ago, he has a way of speaking to me? And it's come to the point where I know his voice automatically. And it's not because I'm so spiritually mature. It's because I'm so high maintenance, he deals with me a lot about me. Yeah. You get worked over as much as I do, you learn the voice. Right? So, the seven are going, oh, okay, that's him. John told, that's him. Okay, yes, Lord. Okay? Everybody getting it? Then, then he encourages each church. After he gets done calling them by name, identifying himself, he goes into an encouragement mode. Uh, for their specific accomplishments, provided they have accomplishments to be encouraged over. And not all of them do. Like I said, this isn't 100% consistent. Well, then when he gets done encouraging that, he follows that up, where applicable, with words of correction, rebuke, caution, even warning. Calling out what that church lacks, or is guilty of, and encouraging them to repent of their sins. Let's not pussyfoot around here. We're dealing with sin here. Now, I've, you know, I know the word, I've used the words flaws and shortcomings, but when it comes to the seven, we're dealing with sin. Look at me, everybody. I know how righteous we all are. But when God comes to us, he's talking sin. Does everybody hear me? It's one thing for us to be saved and growing in maturity. It's another thing entirely to walk about our lives fully accepting that everything we do is under the blood. When it's not. Our thoughts, our speech, our actions, our practices, our traditions, they are not all under the blood. That was Laodicea's problem. They are all about themselves. And he said, you are a disaster. We have to have an, well, gee, I'm going to get here in a minute, an ear to hear. And I'm going to tell you something. The most dangerous position in all of existence to be in is not three and a half foot from a crocodile. It's to think you're all right. It's to think you are holy as he is holy while living in sin. That is the most dangerous place to be. When he follows up his encouragement with, with, with uh, um, the, the need to repent, the words of correction, rebuke, caution, and warning, what is it he's doing to the seven? Well, let me tell you. I mentioned this a week or so ago. He's convicting them. 
Does the Lord ever come to you in a still, small voice and tell you that the thing you just posted on social media, you should not have done that and you should have known better? That's sin. For him that knows to do good and does it not, to him, the word of God says, it is sin. Now, sin's not a popular subject anymore. I'm not a popular guy. I've got nothing to lose. When something goes wrong in your everyday living and the flesh part of you rises up and makes its presence known, exclamation point, underline, bold print, italicized. That, ladies and gentlemen, is sin. Because he comes to you and says, Did we just do that? That's our human flesh manifesting itself as opposed to the Spirit of Almighty God manifesting itself in the place of our flesh. That's called sin. Oh, it may not be adultery. It may not be lying. Although in today's economy, it just may be lying in adultery. I could go on here. Everybody getting what I'm saying? I didn't ask if you're accepting it. I said, are you getting it? He's convicting those churches. He's coming to those churches, and he's not pulling a WWE move. That's not what that's about. He's convicting. Conviction exists because of the love of God for his people. Conviction exists because of the love of God for people. His or not. He's convicting them out of love. When God convicts, it isn't out of anger. God doesn't convict out of frustration. God doesn't convict out of shock that we would ever do that thing. Whatever it was. Whatever it is. He convicts us out of His immeasurable, incomprehensible love for us. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son... That whosoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. He wants to preserve us. That's why the body of Christ gets approached by Him the way the seven were approached by Him in chapters 2 and 3 of the Revelation. That isn't a beatdown. That's love made manifest. And each epistle screams of it. He wants to restore us. He wants to uh, bring us back so He convicts us. Have you ever been under conviction? 
as a blood-bought child of God? Yeah. Guess what? Welcome to the club. You've just experienced another whole dose of God's love. And finally, in this pattern, the Lord says something really interesting, I think. I think it's interesting. He says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. When I was really little, and I heard that verse for the first time, absolutely clueless about anything in the world, I thought, were there people that didn't have ears? I kid you not. I'm not lying to you. I'm thinking to myself, those poor people. So what do they do if they can't hear him? You know. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I read that slightly different. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I read that a little different. I, 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 if you can hear me, listen to what I'm telling you. That's straight out of the MWB translation. For those of you who might be newer here and don't know who that is, that's Michael William Bedard. Hi. Pleasure to meet you. Glad you're here today. That's my translation. If you can hear me, listen to what I'm telling you. Can I tell you what's scary about that statement? He says, if you can hear me, that means there are those in the church that can't and who will never change. They will not change. And despite he comes and he speaks to them and he tries to convict them because of his incomprehensible love, they don't hear him. I remember a minister, I've shared this illustration before. This is a true life illustration. I saw this uh, with my own eyes. Uh, Well, on TV I saw it. But it was my own eyes. I was watching TV. So um, I saw this. This minister was on TV, and this minister and his wife, they they were just, you know, TV ministry, big trials and stuff like this going on. And, And this minister said, and my wife went to God and said, God, why aren't you speaking to my husband? And the Lord spoke back to his wife and said, I am speaking to him. He's not listening. He's not listening. If you can hear me, and there's no guarantee that you can, and that's not his fault, that's your fault, that's my fault. If you can hear me, listen to what I'm telling you. And then, once he gets done saying that right there, then he incentivizes overcoming. If you can hear me, listen to what I'm saying. He gives us incentives to repent by saying, the one who is victorious, or as the New King James Version of the Bible says, to him who overcomes, you get X, Y, and Z. But you're not going to get it if you can't hear me. How important if we 
as individuals look like the churches in chapters 2 and 3, if we look like that, and God takes the time to approach us in the same way, how important is it for us to hear Him? There isn't anything more important. Because you're either going to be an overcomer after having heard Him because He's coming to convict. You're not going to escape conviction. And you shouldn't worry about it. You shouldn't be afraid of it. Because conviction is God not just having saved you through the blood of Jesus Christ. Conviction is Him molding and shaping you, transforming you into the image of the Son of God. You should love to hear His voice when it comes to conviction. We should exist in that. And if He's molding us, if He's shaping us, if He's transforming us from something that we were into something that He is, then we need to hear Him. Because, brothers and sisters, He is talking. End of discussion. He is talking to you. But we'll never overcome whatever it is. Seven churches, seven different gigs, man. Seven churches, seven people, seven different lives. Same voice. We've got to hear if we have any, any chance of overcoming. These seven epistles aren't cut and dried. They aren't cookie-cutter cases. They aren't all the same. They represent seven different churches with seven distinct sets of circumstances that run the gamut from faithful to faint. On the one hand, God approaches us with this immense, fathomless love. But on the other hand, that love sometimes manifests itself in the form of correction, rebuke, caution, and even warning. In order to persuade us to repent of our sinfulness, God has an expectation of us. What God expects of us is to not coexist, to not tolerate the works of the flesh and those that tolerate the works of the flesh. Not a single amen in the house. God doesn't tolerate flesh. He wants us in the same pair of sandals. And He wants us to not tolerate the ones who, frankly, peddle flesh. Whatever that flesh may be. Look at all the things these churches were doing. Just look at them. There was all kinds of stuff going on in these churches. If you don't know what I'm talking about, Read the seven. Read them. 
Read them as soon as you get out of church. Don't read them now. I'm way too entertaining. Read them after you get out of church. Read them after, sometime during the week when you've got a hole in your schedule. Make a hole in your schedule. Because if your schedule is your God, that's sin. Moving right along. Some of these churches were doing a lot of stuff. Yet the Lord said, I have some things against you. See, that stuff that makes us feel so worthy, that's the stuff that makes us feel worthy. And when we feel worthy, we're in danger. You have any idea what I did for the Lord this past week? Let me tell you. That's a problem. Because then your stuff becomes your God. Things accomplished and works accumulated on their own earn you nothing. What He wants are people who are holy as He is holy, not holy when it's convenient and tolerant when it's expedient. That's what He wants. People that are holy because He's holy. And we want to be like Him. Not because we want to be holy. Because holy will become sinful if that's all you want. If you want to be holy because you want to be like Him, now you've got the picture. But if you want to be holy because I get to be holier than you, I am so holy. That's sin. Because that's pride. If your life is flawed, and you have thoughts, and you have speech, and you have actions not in keeping with holiness, first of all, join the club. You didn't know you were in that club, did you? Or did you? You're in the club. Dues are paid immediately after service. But don't just accept the fact that you've got these things in your life. Don't just accept it. Don't just coexist with those things. Don't just tolerate them. Hate them. Fight them. Resist them. Resist those flaws. Resist those tendencies. Resist those sins of the flesh. What does the Bible tell us? Submit yourself, therefore, unto God. Resist the devil. And he will flee from you. But the issue in that whole equation, as wonderful as it sound, sounds, and how oft it is quoted, the problem is that we run into this resistance thing when we're in the middle of some trial or crisis of the flesh, and he doesn't flee. You want to know why? Because you haven't submitted first to God. 
You want to... Anybody ever hear that old Broadway show, Your Arms Too Short to Box with God? It was a musical 40 years ago. Nobody? Okay, well, guess what? That's true. Your arm is too short to box with God. But I got a whole brand new truth for you. Your arm's too short to box with the devil, too, unless you've submitted to God first. You want an industrial strength butt whooping? You try to take the devil on without the God factor in your life. Go ahead. Have a, fun, have a good time. Call me up when you need prayer. Because you have just had your butt handed to you by the darkness of the satanic world. Do you know how many people come in and then turn around and use the revolving door in the back of the church? Because, oh, God didn't work for me. Let me tell you, honey, God don't work for you anyway. You work for God. The problem is, is that we want to have our feelings and our sins and all this stuff forgiven, and we feel better about ourselves without ever submitting to God in the first place, and then we try to go toe-to-toe with our sins and our flesh, and we lose every single time because God isn't in your corner. Your arm's too short to box with the devil. If your life's not the Lord's, it's been nice knowing you. Does God's Word no longer have power to save? Does God's Word no longer have power to deliver? If it has, in fact, lost its power... It's because, it isn't because His Word is the one that's flawed. It's because we, the redeemed of the Lord, have chosen to no longer call upon, rely upon, and summon the power of God to save and to deliver us from the weights and the sins that so easily beset us. God's Word only loses its power because we don't turn to God's Word. Thank you, Tina. It's okay. It, it was weak, but that's all right. The problem that we have, I think this is what old liners used to call, this is part of the sermon where I go to meddling. The problem that we have, like several of the seven, is that we choose to coexist with our Canaanites. It's just easier if we can coexist with them. Everybody know what I mean by the Canaanites? Israel had a promised land, but it was full of Canaanites. God said in Deuteronomy 7, when you go in there, kid you not, MWB translation, but it's the exact same thing. You go in there and you kill it all, you let me sort it out. That's what he said. Everything dies. Everyone, everything, it all dies. Well, our problem is that we choose to coexist with the Canaanites because there's no fight involved. It's just easier that way. 
Do you know why the Lord told the Israelites once they had left Egypt to destroy everything and everyone that existed in Canaan? Anybody know why? It was so that the battle to overcome the Canaanites and to secure the promised land wouldn't drag on throughout all of history. One little incursion or one little skirmish after the other. The war with their Canaan would start. It would be fought as a campaign or a concerted effort. And then it would end. And the job would be done once and for all. That was God's plan. You go, you kill it all, and you settle your promised land. That was God's plan. If Israel, if Israel allowed any of the Canaanites to live, there would be perpetual war and perpetual conflict for Israel throughout all of time. Oh, wait. They did that, and there is that. That's exactly what's happening now. And that's exactly why. Because they didn't go into Canaan and eradicate everything. God has a really good reason to counsel His children not to allow sinful flesh to live. Because if you allow your personal Canaanites, that flesh, those sins that so easily beset you, those weights, if you allow them, choose to coexist with them instead of going in and eliminating them once and for all, you will have conflict for the rest of your days. With something that should not exist. Now, other things crop up. That's life. Crisis, trial, uncertainties. That's that's not Canaanites. That's just the devil. I'm talking about your Canaanites in your promised land. And funny, Israel drops the ball. Canaanites live. They coexist with them. And what have we got even today? Conflict in the Holy Land. Israel failed to destroy all the Canaanites, opting rather to coexist with them. And to this day, they are still in conflict with them. Now I'm going to ask you a question. You know all those voices that you hear in Congress? Yeah, the United States Congress. You know all those voices? And all of those voices that sound just like the congressional voices that are on uh, in the media and social media and stars and all that. You know those voices that are presently calling for a two-state solution for Israel and the Palestinians? You know those voices? Have you heard them? Yeah. Well, guess what? Those voices in 2021, are speaking directly against the original plan of God for Israel. Directly against Deuteronomy chapter 7. They are speaking directly against it. Not only do they want Israel to coexist with their Canaanites, 
They want them to live happily ever after. From a biblical historical perspective, if Israel had just done their job after the exodus during the Canaanite campaigns, the Palestinian conflict wouldn't even be a conflict. It's the same for us. It's exactly the same for us. We can choose to hear the voice of the Spirit and we can obey His command to repent of our sinful, tolerant, coexistent ways. In essence, to overcome. Or we can choose not to and fight our sinfulness and our flesh for the rest of our lives. I'm getting really close to being done, guys. Hang with me just a few more minutes. Hebrews chapter 12 speaks of the Lord's discipline and how it translates to His love for His church. Now I want you to just hang back because this is, this is a bunch of verses. And have you completely forgotten, get a load of this right here, this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline, and do not lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord's discipline, or the Lord disciplines the one he the one he loves, and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. Endure hardship as discipline. God is treating you as his children. For what children are not disciplined by their father? If you are not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you are not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we have all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respect them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while, as they thought best, But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees. Make level paths for your feet so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. So, to our question, and I'm closing, why are the seven churches relevant, and how do they apply to me, the 21st century Christian? Sometimes the love of God approaches us and it looks just like love. Woohoo! And sometimes it looks like correction. Sometimes it looks like rebuke. Sometimes it looks like caution. And sometimes it even looks like warning. That is how God's grace manifests when we are on the wrong path living in our sinful obliviousness, completely unaware that we are in danger. That's how it manifests. That's what it looks like. In Revelation chapter 3, 
verse 19, while addressing the Laodicean church, the Lord says this, and I'm finished. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. At this time, I'm going to have my father-in-law come, and we're going to celebrate our little our tradition that we have had around here since before I ever came to Texas. That's been a long time ago. Celebrating Father's Day. And I'm going, uh, can I get a microphone, please, Kenzie? Thank you. And we're going to uh, have a good time in this in a way that only Brother Johnson can do.